Let's just pray once more. Heavenly Father, we want to see Christ more. We just sung, when we see thee as thou art, we'll praise thee as thou art, as we ought. And Lord, we, we want to see you as you are. Lord, that we may praise you more. And Lord, our mind, we think of the, the disciples there as they saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And Lord, how they were just amazed and they wanted it to go on forever. Well, Lord, I'm sure many of us don't want the service to go on forever, but we pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus as he is. Lord, that we would see afresh, Lord, something of his person and of his work. Lord, that we would be amazed. And Lord, that we would praise you from our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to imagine you're walking down a promenade and the sun's shining down on your back. It's not hard to imagine the sun after the last few weeks, is it? And it's shining down on your back and in front of you, you can see your shadow. And as you're walking along, your shadow is going with you, obviously. But another shadow begins to pull up alongside. You can look at the shadow and you can see whether it's got four legs or two. You can look at the shadow and you can see whether it's tall or short, whether it's wider than you or narrower than you. You can see all kinds of things from a shadow. But what are you actually looking at? You're not looking at anything. If anything, you're looking at the absence of light. There's nothing there. So from nothing, you're working out something. You ever thought about that? You're looking at nothing, but from nothing, you can see something. And then the person that's walking along comes past. You see them, and you see a lot more detail, don't you? You can see so much more than the shadow showed you. Maybe you're walking down a dark alley. And as you're walking down, you can just see a shadow of a person. And a sense of fear comes over you. Why are you scared? It's only a shadow. It's nothing. Well, it's because the shadow tells you of someone else, isn't it? We have here in verse 1 a shadow. It talks about the law being a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. So God gave a law in the Old Testament and it was a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. In fact, it could achieve nothing. But it spoke of one who would come. And it told us an awful lot about the one who would come after the law. The Lord Jesus Christ. But what is it this law taught us? Well, we can see there, verse 1, it talks about sacrifices. And it talks about them being offered year after year. And it talks about how they can't actually achieve what they want to achieve. They can't make anyone perfect. So firstly, we see that sacrifices are required. That's what the law shows us. You can read in your Old Testament, all the way back to Adam and Eve, when an animal's killed so that they may be clothed. You can look at Cain and Abel, and Abel offers a sacrifice of a lamb that's accepted by God. You can read of Noah, and he offers a sacrifice that's accepted by God. You can read of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they all offer sacrifices as well. And then the law is given to Moses, 
and there's just an unbelievable amount of sacrifices year after year sacrifices after sacrifices this is what the law required it happened in the tabernacle and then it happened in the temple and the purpose of these sacrifices is to purify might seem obvious but it's there in verse one it says they can't make them perfect but actually that's what they're trying to do and verse two it talks about would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins so the purpose of these sacrifices was to purify that was the aim that's what they were trying to achieve and it says in the previous chapter that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins so without bloodshed you can't have forgiveness of sins if they had have purified they would have had all of their guilt removed but it says verse 4 it was impossible it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins well of course it's not possible because this is the shadow the shadow can't do anything the shadow is is nothing really it can't take away sins but it's telling you about one who's coming who can and we see that there's no limit to these sacrifices it goes on year after year every year it took the way they have this reminder of sins verse 3 there's a reminder of sins every year how are we reminded of our sins well it's not through sacrifice but it's through remembering a sacrifice when we have communion isn't it this is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me so when we take of the, the 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 bread and the wine we remember the sacrifice that happened in the past once and for all and we were reminded of our sins and what it cost for our sins to be forgiven so we're going to see the perfect sacrifice is the first point the perfect sacrifice so we've seen that there's these sacrifices that aren't working they can't take away sins but then we see verse 5 that there's something different therefore when jesus came into the world this is what he said so you get this contrast between what the old testament said and what jesus said it says here sacrifice and offering you did not desire that's the old testament it's not what god really wanted to remove sins but a body you've prepared for me there's the contrast so jesus has been given a body by god remember jesus he was in heaven with god he was spirit but he became man god and man fully god fully man he took on a body so that he could be that sacrifice only god was good enough to fulfill the requirements of the sacrifice you might think well why couldn't just someone else be the sacrifice for me what was special about jesus why couldn't someone else die for me well it's very simple that jesus was the only one who himself didn't need a sacrifice he was the only one who had no sin we are the ones who need the sacrifice we're the sinners but we're not good enough to make the sacrifice jesus was the only one who didn't need the sacrifice but he was the only one good enough to be the sacrifice 
And you know, Jesus became man. God became man. Because there's certain things that aren't in God's nature. God doesn't know suffering. God doesn't suffer. God doesn't surrender. God doesn't submit. And most importantly, God doesn't die. But God took on flesh. God became man so that he may be that sacrifice, that he might suffer, that he might surrender, and that he might die. We see there verse 6. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. That wasn't what you wanted, God. That wasn't going to do, that wasn't going to cut it. That wasn't going to remove the sin. But then Jesus says, I have come in the volume of the book it's written of me. In God's word, in the Old Testament, in the law, it tells us about Christ. It's written of Christ that he is going to come and he is going to do God's will, which is to cleanse sins through sacrifice. So Jesus was going to fulfill the Old Testament by doing what was written in the book and by offering himself as a sacrifice. Now, was it, was it successful? We'll have a look at verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified. We've been cleansed. We've been washed. We've been purified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what did we say? We said that the Old Testament, the law, said that sacrifices are required. Well, as a sacrifice here, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. We said that the objective of those sacrifices was to purify. Well, did Jesus do that? Well, he says he did. He sanctified. And we said that there was no limit to the sacrifices. They were offered year after year after year, sacrifice upon sacrifice. Now, how could that limitless requirement for sacrifice be fulfilled? How could it be stopped? Well, it's through the infinite God, isn't it? It's the value of the sacrifice. The infinite God satisfied a limitless requirement. He offered one sacrifice for all. Offered once for all. No more sacrifices needed. So we've seen the perfect sacrifice. Now let's move on to verse 11 through to 18. And we're going to see the perfect high priest. The perfect high priest. Now, you need to use your imagination, okay? Imagine a man who gets given a job. And his job is that he needs to empty the oceans of the world, okay? See where the imagination bit's coming in? And his tool that he's given for the job is an egg cup, all right? The imagination. And so he goes to work on day one. And he starts scooping up water and tipping it out on the beach. Scooping up water and tipping it out. And he thinks, oh, it's drying up. This is good. And then it starts to rain because he didn't know about the water cycle in school. And then the tide comes in and it washes away where he's been pouring the water. And he's thinking, this is completely pointless. But he carries on all day scooping out water. Do you know, he does that till the day he dies. And after that, his son takes over and he scoops up water with an egg cup all of his life. And then he dies and his son takes over. And for generations, they're scooping up water. You say, well, that's just ridiculous. That's the most pointless job in the world. But you know, that's precisely what we have here in verse 11. 
for every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So every single day, these priests are hard at work in the temple and they're offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, but no sins are removed. And he dies and his son takes over more and more sacrifices, no more sins removed, not one. What a pointless job, this vast ocean of sins and he can't even remove one. Aren't we glad for the word but in verse 12? But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, this man offered one sacrifice, that's all it took. And he got rid of sins forever. And what happened? Well, we know he went to the cross, didn't he? He offered himself Now, why would God, why would God want thousands of years of killing animals? Why would he want that? Have you ever thought that? How many animals were shed? Thousands? Well, you know, at Solomon's dedication of the temple, that was a great affair. They sacrificed 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Now, you just think about a field of cows, right? or bulls, not just cows, all right? Then think of 22,000 of them. Then th add on to that 120,000 sheep. How many sins were removed? Zero. Now, why would God want this to take place? Well, it's very simple. It's this, that no matter how much religion you do, no matter how much religion mankind does, they cannot get rid of sin. No matter how much they do, no matter how many prayers they pray each day, pilgrimages they go on, times they go to church or to some holy place, supposedly, they cannot get rid of one sin. And that's why God did it. Because it teaches us that we are utterly dependent upon God for salvation. Salvation is of the Lord alone. We cannot remove our own sins. Friends, I don't know all of you. I don't. But I know this, that you cannot remove sins and you cannot remove someone else's sins and no one else can remove your sins except Jesus Christ. No matter how much religion you do, they cannot get rid of your sins. But here comes a priest in verse 12. And this priest, he's not wearing all the robes like the other priests used to. Actually, he's stripped naked and he's wearing a crown of thorns. He's not washing. They used to spend all the time washing the priests. He's not doing that. He's not at their big bowl outside washing. No, he's covered in blood and sweat. He's not carrying a lamb for a sacrifice. No, he is being led as a lamb to the slaughter. He's not ministering in the safety of the temple where everyone likes him. No, he's outside the city where everyone hates him. He's vulnerable. He's not slaughtering an animal. No, he's stretching out his own hands while brutal men slaughter him. And as this priest offers himself, the wrath of God is poured out on him. Do you know, God's wrath 
had never been poured out on an animal. Yes, thousands of animals had died, but God had never poured out his wrath for mankind on an animal. Never. But here this priest offers himself, and there on the cross, God pours out his wrath, the hell that we deserve. Do you know, no priest could have ever said started because they'd never taken away one sin. But this priest, he cries out, finished. He's removed the law in one go. And we see there that the veil, this is flesh, was ripped, the veil in the temple, was ripped from top from God to the bottom man. Now we have access to God's holy presence. Our sins are removed and we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This priest put aside his priestly robes as he went to the cross and we are clothed in his perfect robes. We are perfect in God's sight. Jesus rises from the dead victorious. He's conquered sin and he ascends into heaven and he sits down. And some preachers labor the point that never could the priest sit down on the job. We've got all this list of furniture in the Old Testament to fill the temple with, but there was no chairs. But this priest, he gets to heaven and he sits down at the right hand of God. The job is done. The job is finished. What's the result? Well, it's there in verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Contrast that with verse 1. What did it say in verse 1? Well, the sacrifices, they're trying to make people perfect. And they fail because they're just a shadow. Now the real thing comes and he offers his sacrifices and sinners are made perfect forever. And the Holy Spirit, speaking through Jeremiah the prophet, says this, that this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. This is the law. It will be in their hearts and in their minds I will write it. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. All gone forever. And now... Now there is remission of these, of these sins. There is no longer an offering for sin. See that in verse 18? No more priests. No more altars. That's why there's no altar in this church. No more sacrifices. That's why we've got no more sacraments. Yeah, all done in Jesus. And now all we do is remember what he has done for us. So we've seen the perfect sacrifice. We've seen the perfect high priest. Now let's see, thirdly, the perfected sinner. So this is what it was all about achieving, perfecting sinners. And we've seen that Christ achieved that. Verse 19 to 25. Now, if you were to go to the temple, you could go into the court of the Gentiles. But unless you were Jewish, you couldn't go any further. And then you could go, if, if you were Jewish, you could go into the court of the women. But then you couldn't go any further. Well, women couldn't go any further. Only Jewish men could go past there. 
into the court of the Israelites. And then the only people who could go past there were the priests. And they go into the court of the priests and there would be the altar and the sanctuary. And then you go into the sanctuary and at the end of the sanctuary was the Holy of Holies behind the curtain. And only the high priest could go in there once a year with a sacrifice. And yet here we have this, that it says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So here we are, as mostly Gentile, maybe all of us, men, women, whoever, and we have access to the holiest place of all. We have access to God's very throne, to the mercy seat. And we have boldness to enter there. And it's because of the blood of Jesus. Remember the high priest, he would go in and he had to have the blood with him. And Jesus Christ has gone before us with his blood so that we have access. The, the curtain is gone uh, and it, we have access into God's throne. We can go in with boldness. And this is the privilege that we have that Jesus Christ calls us to come. Come. He is our mediator. He is our high priest. And he's there interceding for us now in heaven. What a blessed people we are. But what are we to do about it? What is our response to be? Well, three times we hear the words, let us, verse 22, 23, and 24. Let us. So in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of the fact that you have access to God's very throne room, the holiest place of all, this is what you need to do. Let us firstly draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In essence is this, you can come to Christ and know and have assurance that you are clean and perfect and blameless before God. That's what you can do. Now I wonder, have you done that? Have you come to Christ and have you acknowledged that there is nothing I can do for forgiveness? And have you come to him and said, please forgive me? Have you come to Jesus to be cleansed, to be washed, to be made perfect in God's sight? Have you? Because Jesus calls us and he says, draw near. And if we draw near, we don't just draw near and it's kind of pie in the sky. Well, hopefully it'll be good enough. We come with full assurance of faith. We can come and we can know. And I say, come on, how can we know? This was 2,000 years ago you're talking about. How can we know? Well, it's very simple. It's this, because Jesus Christ's tomb is empty. That's how you can know, because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Friends, if our religious leader was dead, we might as well give up because he's got the same problem as us. But Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and we can come in full assurance that his sacrifice has been accepted by God and that our sins can be removed forever. Have you come? Have you drawn near? Keep drawing near each day. Come to God's throne. Come to him. Come to Christ. 
Second, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So you've professed faith, now stick to it without wavering. Keep going. Keep looking forward. Keep coming to Christ. Keep drawing nearer and nearer. Keep going. You profess faith, stick to it. Why is it that we see people falling away? It's tragic, isn't it? People who profess to know Christ and we see them falling away. Why does that happen? I'd suggest it's this, that they don't spend time clinging to or cherishing the certain hope of heaven. They don't think about Christ being risen from the dead. They begin to think about themselves. He who promised is faithful. He's always faithful. The Bible says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them. He's faithful. That means he does the same thing every time. If we confess our sins, he does forgive them. And he's just to do so because the blood of Christ has been shed. Turn with me just a few pages back to Hebrews 3 and it says this, verses 12 to 14. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end so those who are truly saved are those who have begun and they've held it steadfast to the end but we're not to become relaxed we're not to sit back and say well i'm saved now it's all good because the bible tells us that we need to be watching and we need to be careful we need to hold fast because some of us it says verse 13 can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, sin is deceitful. It will tell you, come to me and I'll give you what you need. But it's deceiving you and it wants nothing more than to put you in hell. But Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the opposite of deceit is truth. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. That's the difference. So let us draw near but let us hold fast. And thirdly, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. The writer has reminded us in verse 19 that we're brothers. He says, therefore, brethren. So we're a family. So we need to consider each other as a family to stir up love and good works for each other and with each other. And how, how do we do that? Well, it talks there in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Meet together regularly. Meet together regularly. Eamon mentioned at the start, please come to the prayer meeting because we want you to come. Well, here is a biblical command not to neglect meeting together, but to meet together regularly. That's what the Bible commands us to do. And this comes under, remember, consider one another that's where it's coming from so actually by not meeting together we're not considering one another we meet together as part of our consideration for each other 
If everyone took the approach and said, well, oh, I think I'll have tonight off and I'll stay and watch whatever. Yeah, there'd be no one there. But we meet together so that we can encourage each other. What are we to do when we meet together? Well, it's there. We don't just meet for a cup of tea. It says, we meet to exhort one another. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching, we meet to encourage each other, to help each other, to hold fast the confession of our hope. That's why we meet together. And to exhort each other, to press on and to carry on. And what is it that we're ultimately looking at together? We're looking forward to the day of Christ's return, the day when our high priest will return. And it says that we're to exhort each other more and more as we see that day approaching. We say, it's coming. It's coming soon. And we meet together to encourage each other and to spare each other on as we see that day approaching. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we are just amazed at your wisdom. Lord, that you would give this law as a shadow to teach about the one you were sending. Lord, that you would give this law to show how hopeless we are and how we cannot remove our sins. And yet, Lord, it was to show us that there was one coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would remove all of our sins forever through one sacrifice. Father, we thank you for him. We thank you that he's seated at your right hand, that he is victorious, that he's conquered sin and death and hell. And we thank you, Lord, that he saves. Lord, we ask that you would save tonight. Lord, that you would uh, be at work in our hearts. Lord, that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, you stand there in the holiest place of all and you've made a way and you say, come. Father, we thank you. Lord, help us to hold fast. Lord, we don't want one of us to be lost. We want all of us to hold fast. And we thank you, Lord, that if you've begun a work in us, Lord, that you will always finish that work because you are God. Lord, we look forward to that day when you will return, when we will see Christ and we will be like him when we see him as he is. Lord, may that day come soon, we pray. But Lord, until that time, Lord, help us to consider each other. Lord, to exhort each other, to build each other up as your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.